Okay. So I'm wondering, uh, just do a little survey here. How many people in this room would have had what they would call a relaxing day today? Pop your hands up if you've had a nice relaxing day. It's very unusual for me, but I've had one. My goodness. How many people have had a busy day today? Or sort of, you know, fairly busy, something like that. Mm, Interesting, isn't it? So, how many people found it relatively easy to calm their mind there? How many people felt pretty calm? It's not too bad, is it? Okay. How many people had a relaxing day and felt calm? That's interesting. It's quite a few, isn't it? (laughs) It's about half the people. So, um, anyway, why am I asking all this? Well, I... The title of today's talk is Doing Nothing is Hard Work. So I'm just very, very sort of interested in what our kind of activity levels are. Um, So just a short sort of reminder of what we've done so far. Well, I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed having Tage and Andrew over last week. Uh, I thought it was a cracking evening and, uh, yeah, I was really pleased uh, with what he did. Um, So what we're looking at in this series is just sitting practice and... Well, what I've been asking really so far is, well, why, are, why aren't more people doing it uh, in the movement, really? Yeah? So we have the, the more developmental practices as part of Sangharachita's system of meditation. And after we do a mindfulness of breathing or a metabhavna, the idea is that we just relax, we just sit, very much in the way that we did there. And uh, we'll probably do a little bit more of that in the second half uh, this evening. So... Um, well, we're not just looking at just sitting, we're looking at kind of more generally, well, why is doing nothing generally such hard work? Yeah? I suppose when I look out into society, there's so much kind of tension, so much stress, so much frenzy. And, uh, well, this is something that I really, really work with myself. I think we're all at one end of the spectrum from what we might call kind of terminally lazy to slightly overactive, and I certainly veer towards that myself and uh, well, I think I've just been getting more and more sick of it actually <laughs> over the last two or three years and wondering well what's it all about you know why am I like this and I suppose I sort of look around at the Buddhist centre as well and I look around at how people are around the Buddhist centre and I think that this kind of thing that we might call the kind of Protestant work ethic or stressed out work ethic or something like that I see it kind of coming into the centre and a little bit like a virus really and infecting the people in the centre as well. So just because we're Buddhists and just because we sort of get paid by the Buddhist centre to do things doesn't mean that we're immune to it uh, by any means. So um, I, while I was looking at this series and something that really, really inspired me was a book that was recommended by Ratnaguna called How to Be Idle. And I kind of wonder... What's the kind of feeling in the body when I say the word idle? Yeah, idle. Yeah, is there a bit of a like, oh, that's a bad thing? Yeah, because I suppose sort of what I hope to demonstrate by the end of this talk is that actually it's not a bad thing at all. Um, Maybe it's just a bad thing because we've been kind of infected with this virus of hard working. So what I'd like to do in this talk is I'd like to have a little look at, well, where's all that come from? Does it come from right view? Does it come from a skillful kind of basis? Yeah, a skillful way of leading our lives. And then I'd like to have a little look at, well, what could we do about it? Yeah, assuming that it's not a good thing, what could we do about it? What can we look out for? Yeah, and those of you who were here in the first week or who've listened to the talk on the website, because it's up there already, actually. Um, We're managing to get the talks up very quickly these days. Um, you'll remember that uh, the first talk was called Beware Ideology. And what we were looking at was how hard it is to think for ourselves. How easily we are infected by the group values. Yeah? We like to think that we're free thinkers. And actually we are free thinkers to the point that it all appears to be going on inside our head. So we think it's original because we're the only person experiencing it. Yeah? But actually a lot... Well, as Sanger actually says, it's very rare for somebody to have an original thought in their whole lifetime. Quite sort of challenging that, isn't it? So, I want to look at how we can become skivers and not strivers. 
tonight. And I'm going to be doing it with the help of Tom Hodgkinson here. Now, this is an excellent book, and I'd recommend it to everybody who gets a bit stressed out from time to time. Um, it took me about four months to read it. Yeah? So good it was, because I just kept on reading it and thinking, yeah, I'm going to go out for a walk and enjoy myself, actually, instead of kind of doing my shoulds and meeting my deadlines. So um, I really recommend this book. There's a chapter in it. I must, there's two chapters in it, actually. There's one on smoking. And there's one on drinking, which I would have agreed with wholeheartedly about 10 years ago, but I don't quite agree with his, with his angle now. Though um, it is quite tempting to have a few glasses of wine after you've read the, the wine chapter. <laughs> but, um, but basically, he goes into various areas of the life, um, and he deconstructs sort of modernity's view on it, actually. It's very, very effective. One of the effects of this book, which actually, this is a new one with added idleness, uh, this book... <laughs> One of the effects of this book was that, well, I really started to question what the hell I was doing rushing around trying to achieve things, actually. And I started to think, I started to think, well, why don't I just enjoy my life? What am I doing? Yeah, there's a quote I'll talk about in a minute uh, from Thoreau, you know, the great American writer. And he says, how did we become slave drivers of ourselves? I really, really want to know the answers to that. So this is why I'm doing this series, partly. So I want to start off with a poem that to me represents the ideal, maybe, or somewhere thereabouts, yeah. I'm sure some of you will have heard of this. It's by W.B. Yeats, and it's called The Lake Isle of Innisfree. I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, and a hive for the honey bee, and I live alone in the bee loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the vales of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and the noon a purple glow, and evening full of linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day. I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's grey. I hear it in the deep heart's core. Yeah, so that poem's always had a, a really lovely effect on me, and just particularly the lines, uh, for peace comes dropping slow. It's just lovely, isn't it? some reason I thought it was dripping and I was a little bit disappointed that it was dropping when I read it again after all these years. So how often do we experience the peace dropping or, or dripping slow? Yeah, I mean, personally speaking, I think if I'm not careful, the only time that I really, really um, experience it is when I'm meditating at times and particularly when I go on retreat. And actually that is the importance of going on retreat, I think. So we can change our pace. Uh, and the peace can come dropping slow. But when I look around Manchester, I think Manchester's a little bit more like Blake's poem, yeah, from the 18th century, London. So I'm sure most of you will have heard of this. I'll just read four lines. I wander through each chartered street, near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark in every face I meet, marks of weary, marks of woe. Yeah? So obviously Blake is protesting there against the inhumanity of the Industrial Revolution. But, you know, I mean, not much has changed, has it? I mean, I've taken the liberty to rewrite those four lines and uh, change them more to kind of a modern angle. So if you'll bear with me and excuse this sacrilegious effort. I wander through each advert street near where the global factories grow and mark in every stressed out face, deadlines, worry, mobile phones. <laughs> <laughs> so, why is it that most people that I observe, myself included, have a tendency to go towards sort of Blake's poem, and why aren't we living more like the people in Yeats' poem? Yeah, why are we more marks and marks of woe and not peace dropping slow? Yeah. So, where did this rushing around come from? Yeah, this stressed-out ethic, this need to be on the go. Yeah, the relentless doing, doing, doing of modern life. And the flip side, really, the fear of relaxing. Yeah? 
the reluctance to relax. And I know not everybody in this room will experience life like this. I'm sure there are some kind of really relaxed people in the room. But you have to bear in mind and just try and understand how the other people are, if you like that. So, um, you know, why is it that, in the words of Henry Thoreau, we have become a nation of, of slave drivers, of ourselves? Well, what I'd like to do, just for a little bit, is to keep sort of dipping into Hodgkinson's book, and I'd like to have a little look at where this, come, where this all came from, really. And just to sort of see, well, what are the foundations like? So I'm going to read a relatively long bit. It's a couple of pages. And it's Hodgkinson is having a look at where this all came from. Yeah? So he goes back to, to Blake's time, actually. So he writes, The English historian E.P. Thompson, in his classic book, the making of the English working class, argues that the creation of the job is a relatively recent phenomenon, born out of the Industrial Revolution. Before the advent of steam-powered machines and factories in the mid-18th century, work was a much more haphazard and less structured affair. People worked, yes, they did jobs, in inverted commas, but the idea of being yoked to one particular employer to the exclusion of all other money-making activity was unknown. And the average man enjoyed a much greater degree of independence than today. Take the weavers. Yeah? So before the invention in 1764 of the spinning jenny by the weaver and carpenter James Hargreaves and of the steam engine in the same year by James Watt, weavers were generally self-employed and worked as and when they chose. The young Frederick Engels, who was sort of one of the formers of Marxism, noted that they had control over their own time. And there's a quote here. So it was that the weaver was usually in a position to lay by something and rent a little piece of land that he cultivated in his leisure hours, of which he had as many as he chose to take, since he could weave whenever and as long as he pleased. There's a quote here. They did not need to overwork, they did no more than they chose to do, and yet earned what they needed. In addition to this autonomous and leisure-filled life, the weavers were also in control of the whole manufacturing process. They produced the cloth and sold it to a travelling merchant. It was a simple, unsophisticated existence. Engels maintained that they had little knowledge or even interest in what was going on in another village, say five miles away, but they were not enslaved to a job. They were task-orientated rather than being bound by a nine-to-five, or its yet more brutal ancestor, the dawn-to-dusk. So anyway, he continues. Also, work and life were intertwined. A weaver, for example, might weave eight or nine yards on a rainy day. On other days, a contemporary diary tells us, he might weave just two yards before he did sundry jobs about the lathe and in the yard and wrote a letter in the evening. Or he might go cherry picking, work on a community dam, carve a cow, cut down trees, or go and watch a public hanging. <laughs> I don't know where that came from <laughs> so anyway his point is England then before the invention of the dark satanic mills was a nation of idlers but this chaotic approach troubled contemporary moralists who believed that people must be kept busy to keep them out of mischief in 1820 the middle class observer John Foster noted with horror that when agricultural labourers sorry, the agricultural labourers, having finished their work, were left with, and there's a quote here, several hours in the day to spend nearly as they please. They will, for hours together, sit on a bench or lie down on a bank or hillock, yielded up to utter vacancy and torpor. <laughs> anyway, worse luck, the new Protestant work ethic was successful. The Industrial Revolution, above all, at least according to Tom Hodgkinson, was a battle between hard work and idleness, and hard work won. Machines stole the process of production from hands and minds. Workshops became manufactories. The self-employed became the employed. Families began to live on wages alone and to buy in the groceries that perhaps they had grown themselves in previous generations. They might have been earning more money, but a terrific blow was dealt to their quality of life. Joyful chaos working in tune with the seasons, telling the time by the sun, variety, change, self-direction, 
All this was replaced with a brutal, standardised work culture, the effects of which we are still suffering from today. So anyway, whether that's a completely accurate representation of history, uh, I don't know, but I don't know. It kind of feels nice to hear that things were different once. <laughs> yeah. So who did this suit? Yeah. Did it suit your sort of average man in the street? Because I imagine it was just... I suppose women would have worked a bit as well, wouldn't they, uh, in those days? Um, you know, who did it suit? Well... It suited the rich, didn't it, basically. So Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, who sort of looked into this a lot, he said that the rich had a problem. Yeah? What they had to do was, and I quote here, they had to transform a population of strong-willed, independent-minded, heavy-drinking, party-orientated, riot-loving, life-loving Englishmen into a docile, disciplined, grateful workforce. Yeah? So how on earth did they do this? Yeah? Well, for those of you that know anything about ideology or at my talk last week, what they did was they did this by spreading what Marx called a false consciousness. Yeah? So false consciousness is an ideology prevalent in society that makes sense to people because it's what they're used to. And actually what it tends to do is hide some deep favouring towards a certain end of society, normally the rich. Yeah? So how did they do this? So we'll just have a little look at this very briefly. Yeah? They did this by, believe it or not, recruiting God. <laughs> so Hodgkinson says, God was ruthlessly brought in by the capitalists to control the minds of the masses. Crucially, the new joyless creed of Methodism was preached to the labouring poor in church on Sunday. At church they were bombarded with the idea that they were sinful, that all pleasures were wrong, and that the path to salvation lay in quiet suffering on earth. <laughs> God was reinvented as a sort of big brother figure and it was his will that you worked hard. <laughs> yeah. So if God didn't work, there was a couple of other things up the rich's sleeve. Uh, the next one was hunger. Yeah. So I've got a quote here from the 18th century reverend, Mr Andrew Townsend. And basically at that time they were thinking about kind of using force to get people to work hard and to submit. Yeah. But he argued that the use of mere force of law to impress the new work ethic on the workers gave too much trouble. It requires too much violence and makes too much noise. Better and easier, he maintained, was to keep them hungry. Hunger, on the contrary, as it is the most natural motive for work and industry, also provokes the most peaceful efforts. So anyway, thank you very much to the Reverend there. Yeah. If that didn't work, the last one was patriotism. Yeah. So those of you who know Thomas Carlyle, yeah, this is what he had to say. Um, basically, Hodgkinson says here, around the same time, the thundering polemicist Thomas Carlyle did much damage to the 19th century by promoting the notion of dignity or even the romance of hard graft. Man was created to work, not to speculate or feel or dream. He wrote it, adding, every idle moment is treason. <laughs> yeah. So basically, unless you are working away hard, you are a bad person. Yeah? So the root of this, well, it's just very, very unskillful indeed, isn't it? Um, just something that Bertrand Russell adds at the end here. He says, well, the rich uh, preach the dignity of labour. Yeah, this is around this time, yeah? The rich preach the dignity of labour while taking care themselves to remain undignified uh, in that respect. I really, really like this next quote here. Or as the late great British writer Geoffrey Bernard puts it, as if there was something romantic and glorious about hard work. If there was something romantic about it, the Duke of Westminster would be digging his own effing garden, wouldn't he? LAUGHTER <laughs> Bit of irreverence doesn't do anybody any harm, does it? <laughs> so, all right, you know, what the heck are we doing sort of exploring all that 200 years ago? Well, you know, I mean, things have changed quite a lot, haven't they, in that time? Yeah, certainly we're all a little bit more comfortable now. I don't think God holds the same sway anymore and the hunger and, and stuff like that. Um, 
But what I, what I think is, is that, you know, it's still really this sort of idea of if we're not working hard, it's really, really subtly embedded in the collective consciousness, uh, I think. Yeah, so it affects not just our jobs as well. Yeah? I'm talking a lot about work this evening, but actually what I'm talking about really is the whole of our lives. And there's something about this kind of working hard ethic that can really, really infiltrate and ruin our lives if we're not careful. So um, I just want to have a little look at a couple of areas uh, to do with that, yeah? Just to introduce you a little bit more to kind of Hodgkinson's writing, and then we'll move on to some more dharmic things uh, after that, if indeed this isn't dharmic. So um, I want to look at how strivers and skivers approach lunch and illness, yeah? So... In each chapter of this, Hodgkinson, he pulls apart an area of our lives, yes. So I've just picked two that kind of seem to kind of reveal some interesting things. So um, let's have a look at lunch. He's quite a sentimental fellow, Hodgkinson, but he's quite persuasive as well, yeah. Here we go. This is, this is him getting sentimental about lunch. And I'm sure you'll really pick up the idler uh, in this. I have a vague notion that once upon a time, not so long ago... Lunch was a meal to be enjoyed. The midday meal was an occasion to be deliberated over, shared with friends and colleagues, savoured, taken over two or three hours. (laughs) It was a time for gossip, laughter and booze, of which Hodgkinson's very fond of. It was a dreamy oasis of pleasure, which took the edge off the dreary afternoon and was to be looked forward to during the busy morning. It might even involve a stroll around town, a taxi ride, a trip to the gallery... Sometimes lunch would go on all afternoon and into the evening and leave behind it a delightful trail of cancelled appointments and drudgery postponed. Lunch, wrote the great journalist Keith Waterhouse in his The Theory and Practice of Lunch, 1986, is free will. Yeah. So, anyway, I imagine that's how the skiver might approach lunch there. Yeah, but nowadays... It seems like we've been infected with this kind of fast food mentality from the West, yeah, from America uh, in particular. And I don't know this for sure, but I have a sense that at least in the Industrial Revolution, people stopped to eat. Yeah, I don't know that for sure, because I'm not a historian. Uh, I did actually ring up the Manchester, two universities in Manchester and the University in Salford to check out a few facts, but nobody got back to me. I imagine it's a busy time of the year. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know that for sure, but... Well, we don't stop for lunch often now, do we? We're kind of grabbing something on the go. Yeah, we may kind of eat while we're still working or in front of a computer, or as Hodgkinson says, sit miserably in Pret-a-Manger, KFC and McDonald's, reading papers and staring blankly outside. Yeah, or we may visit Starbucks and fill up vast flagoons of coffee to help us survive the day in a, hate, in a state of high anxiety. Yeah, so... This kind of sacrifice of food to work reaches its apotheosis in the 1980s film Wall Street, where the thrusting broker Gordon Gecko utters the immortal line, Lunch? you got to be kidding. Lunch is for wimps. (laughs) (laughs) So so what's the answer to this? I wonder wonder how many of us can sort of resonate with this a little bit. You know, how do we eat our lunches? Well, the answer is apparently to follow the Slow Food Manifesto, yeah, which was invented in 1986 by a group of left-wing Italians who were appalled by the cultural ascendancy of fast food. So I'll read you the Slow Food Manifesto and just sort of see what you think. Our century, which began and has developed under the insignia of industrial civilization, first invented the machine and then took it as its life model. We are enslaved by speed and have all succumbed to the same insidious virus, fast life, which disrupts our habits, pervades the privacy of our homes and forces us to eat fast foods. To be worthy of the name, Homo sapiens should rid himself of speed before it reduces him to a species in danger of extinction. A firm defence of quiet material pleasure is the only way to oppose the universal folly of fast life. May suitable doses of guaranteed sensual pleasure and slow, long-lasting enjoyment preserve us from the contagion of the multitude who mistake frenzy for efficiency. 
Our defence should begin at the table with slow food. Let us rediscover the flavours and savours of regional cooking and banish the degrading effects of fast food. In the name of productivity, fast life has changed our way of being and threatens our environment and our landscapes. So slow food is now the only truly progressive answer. Slow food guarantees a better future. So, very into their food, aren't they, in that manifesto? Who knows, maybe, maybe slow food could change the world. It could certainly change our day, couldn't it, if we, if we took an hour off and relaxed each day to eat rather than kind of doing stuff on the go. So um, we'll have a final look at something from Hodgkinson now, and we'll have a look at illness. And to me, this really, really sums up how mad society's gone. So I hope you enjoy this, yeah? It's a little tour through the history of LEMSIP, believe it or not. Yeah? I bet you didn't think when you were coming tonight you were going to be hearing about LEMSIP. Well, just listen to this. Yeah? So what does he say first of all? Ah, yes, here we go. <coughs> this is the kind of the Skyver's defence, first of all. Once upon a time, it seems we knew how to be ill. Now we have lost the art. Everyone everywhere disapproves of being ill. Being ill is just not useful. The newspapers create a climate of guilt around it because of the time it takes away from useful, productive work. As we saw in our chapter on skiving, headlines reading days lost to British industry due to sickness are a regular sight. The stories make one feel that when ill, you are somehow letting the side down, losing the nation money. Being ill is unpatriotic and terribly inconvenient to the work culture. It results in days off and expenses for employers. It makes us feel guilty. Society today simply does not allow us to be ill, or at least it would prefer us to be uncomplaining automatons. Suffering is swept under the carpet, denied, ignored, made war upon. So what's the answer to this then, yeah? Well, when we're struck down with illness, we should be thinking, not, oh no, my boss will get annoyed, but, oh great, I can lie in bed. I can watch old movies. I can stare at the ceiling. I can read books. In short, I can do all those things that I'm always complaining that I don't have time to do. So, I wonder again how many people in this room get a bit kind of guilty when they're ill. So let's have a look at this thing with Lemsip, yeah, and then we'll pop this book down for a while. But uh, I hope it's sort of introduced you a little bit to some flourishes by Mr Hodgkinson. So, got about a page and a half to read here, so bear with me, yeah? Our attitudes to illness have grown dramatically less idler-friendly in recent years. To demonstrate this, we need only look at the recent history of Lemsip's marketing. When I was a child, a mug of Lemsip mixed with honey was one of the pleasures of lying in bed with a heavy cold or with flu. It went with being wrapped up in a dressing gown or watching Crown Court. I don't, remember, I don't know how old he is. I don't remember that one myself. Mine was kind of black and white movies like the Maltese Falcon. Uh, it was all part of the fun. Your mother might bring you a steaming cup of soothing nectar in bed. You would sip it, cough weakly and luxuriate in its fumes. It had some positive effect on the physical symptoms of the illness, to be sure, but it was also a pleasure in itself. Lemsip was part of the delicious and much-needed slowdown that illness can bring to our lives. Not anymore. Lemsip has reinvented itself as a hard-working medicine. It has changed from a friend of the idler to his worst enemy. Why? Because life doesn't stop. As one of their horrifying go-getting slogans has it. The implication is that rather than enjoying your illness and waiting a few days till it's gone away, you should manfully repress the symptoms and carry on working as normal, competing, working, consuming. Lemsip even suggests that taking their medicine will somehow elevate the ordinary man into something more noble. New Lemsip products for hard-working heroes, their website proclaims. We must soldier on and do our bit. No time to be ill, no time for bed. Go, go, go. Most appalling of all was their recent ad line, Stop snivelling and get back to work. <laughs> Other ads played on workers' insecurities by showing that the man who took Lemsip and struggled into the office while suffering from the flu was less likely to lose his job than the wimp who took a day off. 
What they're saying is getting a cold could result in your losing your job, your home, your mortgage, everything you hold dear. Take Lemsip and you'll be all right. You may not be happy, but at least you'll be safe. But it gets worse. In its latest product innovation, Lemsip has gone even further towards becoming a strictly pleasure-free remedy. Now it is no longer even something that you sip. It has invented a new range of pills called Lemsip Max Strength Direct, which you can take without the need for water. <laughs> it is, they claim, the first truly convenient cold and flu remedy. In other words, you can snaffle a couple while you're getting dressed or on the run for the bus. You no longer have to waste precious time, suffering the dreadful inconvenience of boiling a kettle, pouring the water on the powder and then slowly sipping it. Lem sip without the tedious sip. And without the lem, most probably. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. That's a little bit of Mr Hodgkinson there. So it's all gone a bit crazy, hasn't it, really? Uh, you know, I think, it's just, I think what this book really, really brought out to me was just some of the things that we kind of take for granted, actually. And, you know, how they're just pretty mad, really, when you look at it. So how are we supposed to practice the Dharma effectively yeah, if we get caught up in this? Yeah, this ideology of rushing around and being slave drivers of ourselves. Yeah, how can we practice the Dharma if we can't slow down, relax and enjoy the present moment? Yeah? And we've got this story, haven't we, of Sona uh, in the Pali Canon, not the one who's around the building. He wasn't around then. Um, we've got this story of Sona practicing the Dharma, walking up and down, doing it too willfully until his feet bled, apparently. And he was a player of some instrument like the lute in that time. So the Buddha took him aside and said, your lute, what happens if the s strings are too tight? Yeah? And Sona said, well, you know, it's all, out of, it's all out of tune, isn't it? It's not working properly and stuff. And the Buddha's like, well, what about if the strings are too slack? And Sona asked the same. And well, what the Buddha was saying to him really after that was, well, just make sure that you're neither too tight nor too loose uh, as well. So obviously, if we're getting caught up in all this, well, you know, we're falling into the danger of, of being too tight, aren't we? I mean, obviously, if you, if you are terminally sort of lazy and you can't rouse your energy, and maybe it's good that you get involved in a demanding project, yeah? But probably most of us in the room, we're at the other end of the spectrum, aren't we? So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to sort of move on to the second half of the talk, and I'd like to have a little look at some of the things that can get in the way of us becoming true idlers. Just had a sip. And I've got a few quotes here by Sangharachita, actually, that I'm hoping will make you feel a lot better about this word idling. Yeah? So the first thing is, there's so much work to do. Yeah? How many of us feel like that when we're at work? Just pop your hands up. Just sort of. <laughs> yeah, I do as well. It's a really compelling argument isn't it it's something like an inner voice is going oh there's so much to do isn't there and we get anxious and we get caught up with getting all the tick lists done before we kind of go home the one that never actually gets down to the bottom so obviously if we if we look at it kind of clearly staff are probably the biggest expense at work aren't they so probably in most of the jobs that we do due to sort of the work wanting to make profits they have less staff yeah I see a few heads nodding there we can't afford more staff at the Buddhist Centre, so we're stuck with what we've got. So, obviously, if we haven't got enough staff, we're going to get stretched, aren't we, from time to time. And then if everybody else is stretched, it's very easy just to sort of accept this as okay, isn't it? You know, this is fine, this is just what I'm doing. So, um, Sangharachita, in Vision and Transformation, he's got this comment to make in the chapter on right livelihood. He says the following... If your means of livelihood involves so much mental strain that you become tense and cannot meditate, then as a Buddhist you have to consider your position and try to find work of a less stressful nature. Interesting that, isn't it? And not always easy to put into effect, is it? Particularly if, well, I know some of these people in the room, if you have an altruistic job. So for instance, if you're a nurse uh, or something like that, it could be really, really hard, couldn't it, to see through that there's so much work to do kind of mentality but I suppose sort of what I'm constantly asking myself in my job is something about what well, Buddhism is about balance isn't it remembering the story of Sona 
and the guitar. It's about kind of balancing uh, our energies, isn't it, in a way? So we might want to kind of ask ourselves the question, why do I care so much about other people or getting the deadlines done, but so little about myself? Yeah? Remember, it's really, really important, isn't it, to care equally about ourselves as others. So, I mean, obviously, some jobs are vocations, aren't they? And Sanger actually is very sort of clear uh, in his chapter on right livelihood that if your job is a true vocation, then you can work as hard as you like, because it's like play. You know, it's something that you just get, you just want to do all the time. I get the sense from reading kind of Michelangelo's biography that his job, you know, being a sculptor was just a vocation. He just, just absolutely loved doing it and wanted to be doing it all the time. Yeah, but this, of course, is, well, it's just really, really rare, isn't it? Yeah. So, but what could we do otherwise? Yeah. Um, what can we do, you know, about this at our jobs? Well, we, we could try and slow down. Yeah. But we may find that we get criticised uh, if we do that. Or we may find that we kind of miss the praise for being a good worker. Yeah, often a lot of our ego's kind of tied up, isn't it, in getting affirmation and praise for what we do uh, at work. So it can be really hard to let go of that, even if we're killing ourselves to do it. We could even consider going part-time, which is what a lot of Buddhists do. Or we could even consider leaving, as Sangharatsu says, and doing something that stresses us out less. But... And this is my second point now. This is really, really difficult, isn't it? Yeah? Uh, for many, many reasons. But the second point is, well, maybe we're a bit tied to the work ethic through attachment to money and status. Yeah? Maybe there's something about our job that gives us status and enough money yeah, to lead the sort of life that we want. Yeah? So, as Hodgkinson notes, it's a bit like the ideology of hunger and God. Yeah? So using hunger and God to get people to work that doesn't work anymore, does it? So it's been replaced by what he calls the golden handcuffs of possessions and status. Quite like that, don't they? The golden handcuffs. So they look really sort of nice and worth having, but actually they kind of enchain us. So what tends to happen is, is that because we're surrounded by these objects of status, yeah, well, what happens? Yeah, a product costs money. We need to work to raise the money, don't we? The more products we need, the more we need to work. Or we can go into debt, and then we need to work to pay off our debt. So we're a bit kind of stuffed, aren't we? So there's something about yeah, the Buddhist teaching of renunciation here, isn't it? And I think for me, I have a bit of a problem really with the way renunciation's taught a lot uh, around the Buddhist centre. It can often come across as something that's sort of really, really hard work and painful, and really like an ascetic practice, a bit like the Buddha when he was doing his self-mortification. But actually, I think for me, renunciation is about giving up those things that limit our lives. It's just as simple as that, really. It's a bit like having a clear look at your life. And are you having to work every hour of the day and be really, really busy all the time to fund these kind of, this sort of material lifestyle? And what are the effects of that? What might it be if you stopped? Yeah. So, Again, Hodgkinson's got a little kind of small paragraph here. Why can't we do this then, yeah? Why can't we go part-time or sort of change our lifestyle, yeah? At the bottom of it all is fear. Fear paralyzes us. Be fearless. Quit your job. You have nothing to lose but your anxieties and misery. Or follow the lead of those brave proto-idlers who have elected to work a three-day week. A bona fide social trend. I like this bit. There's an immense psychological benefit to knowing that your days of free time each week outnumber your days of time sold to another. It makes the work more pleasurable and leaves four days in which to pursue your own projects. There is certainly a financial knock, but, but most find that the loss of income is easily compensated for by the extra time. Hmm, interesting, isn't it, that? Yeah? So, I'm just wondering, well, you know, what would happen if... We quit our jobs. Yeah? What would happen if we kind of like stayed in our jobs and just decided to work at a lesser pace? Yeah? To be kind to ourselves, to have a balanced approach to it, and to hell what everybody else thinks. Yeah? Well, the third point is that can get in the way of us being an idler is that people might think badly of us. Yeah? So, 
I think this is sort of the crux of it all in a way, and I think this is a lot about what keeps the work ethic going. Yeah, the need to fit in, as it were, the fear to stand outside of the herd, as it were, and go, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So I kind of wonder what it would what it would be like if we all went into work tomorrow and idled around a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Looked relaxed, happy, looked like we were enjoying life. Well, this, of course, will annoy people, won't it? Yeah? It will annoy the people who'd really like to be idlers deep down. Yeah? But they can't because they've got such a fierce inner critic. Yeah? So I think kind of like the point with this is it's worth remembering that the only way to escape criticism is to move out to an island on your own. But the problem is, is that the people that know you there will be criticising you behind your back still. Yeah? I think the thing to sort of really, really kind of remember here, and this is something that I really, really am trying to sort of crack myself. Yeah, everybody has their views about how you should act. Yeah, everybody on this planet has their views about how you should act. And I am sick to death, actually, of compromising myself and what, you know, the vision that I see just to sort of escape criticism yeah, from other people. Let's have a look at the Buddha's life. Yeah? He spent 45 years teaching the Dharma, walking around as an old man with dysentery, yeah? just really, really doing his best to help people. He had people trying to kill him. He had loads of people trying to hate him. He had loads of Brahmins coming up and trying to trick him whenever he sat down for a minute. Yeah? We can't escape criticism, can we? Yeah? The, if the Buddha can't do it, then we can't, can we? Yeah? The Buddha's very, very good, actually. I've just thought of this story. He's very good at criticism. There's this story, apparently, where um, somebody came up to the Buddha and start, started abusing him while he was walking on his arms around. So the Buddha stood there patiently and listened to what this chap had to say. And then eventually, as what happens when you don't react, the person ran out of steam. And the Buddha said, so have you finished? <laughs> and the chap said, uh, yeah, I have, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the Buddha said, so just wondering, what would you do? Let's, let's take an imaginary scenario here. What would you do if somebody gave you a present that you didn't want? And the chap looked a bit abashed because he was expecting the Buddha to react. And he said, well, well, I suppose I'd give it back. And the Buddha said, and so I give the abuse back to you. Off you go. <laughs> and walked off. <laughs> so that's a good way of dealing with criticism, isn't it? He wasn't phased by it. He didn't get angry. So um, there's a little quote here from Sangharachita, yeah, in Wisdom Beyond Words. And I think you're going to like this one. You have to be watchful for people trying to make you feel guilty. So don't let people get at you with any kind of emotional blackmail. If someone starts saying to you, look how hard I'm working. Don't you feel bad just sitting there doing nothing, letting me do it all? You should say, no, I feel fine. I'm really enjoying watching you do it all. It's important not to give in to this sort of emotional blackmail. Oh, he's a rum one, isn't he, Sangharachita? So what's Sangharachita's tip for working? Yeah? In Vision and Transformation, in this chapter we've been looking at, he says that unless your job is your vocation, work as little as possible. Make just enough money to live as simply as possible and devote the rest of your time to Buddhism, the study of the Dharma, meditation and helping out around the centre. And I can imagine Sangharachita as well, because obviously this is just one particular context, would say something like enjoying yourself as well. Yeah, he's a great lover of the arts and the countryside, friendship. Yeah. He also adds, and this in a way, this is just to sort of repeat what Hodgkinson said, this does mean, of course, cutting down one's needs, or rather, one's wants. But it is surprising how one can cut down if one really makes up one's mind to do so. Yeah. So anyway, if you're having a bit of a problem with this, just remember one thing. The Buddha never worked a day in his life. Well, he didn't, did he, according to the stories? Yeah? So anyway, we've had a bit of a go at work here, haven't we? And in a way, I know that there's a whole other aspect to life, isn't there, apart from work. But I think, in a way, attitudes to work, they, can, they infiltrate our whole life. So that's why I've kind of dwelt on it quite a lot. But we've got one here. Well, OK, so we've got a day off work. Can we just relax? Or are we off shopping, putting up sheds, doing a thousand things around the house? Yeah? And I know that everybody in this room has a different lifestyle. And I know that if you have children, 
you've got a whole other thing to consider. Yeah? What I'm on about here is when we have free time. And everybody has some free time, I hope. Yeah? So Sangharachita, again, he's being pretty radical here. He says in Wisdom Beyond Words, in a great chapter that I'd recommend everybody reads, it's called The Greater Mandala of Uselessness. The Greater Mandala of Uselessness. Yeah? So what does he say? So we're talking about like times where we've got nothing to do. Yeah? We don't really have anything to do. Well, do we? Most of the time we could just be sitting back, as it were, and enjoying the universe. That's our major occupation. That's our real work, not to work. We need to get food to eat, clothing, a roof above our head, health care, a few books, transport of some kind, but the rest of our time and energy we could just devote to the contemplation of the universe, simply enjoying it all. And he continues, and I really, really like this, and in a way, like this is the nugget, I think, from the whole talk. You are the product of millions upon millions of years of evolution. Yeah? You are the goal. You are what it has all been for. You don't have to justify your existence by being useful. You yourself are the justification of your existence. You haven't come into existence after all these millions of years of evolution just to sit down in front of a typewriter or to become an accountant. You are the justification of the whole process. You are an end in yourself. All that can really be said to be here for is to develop, this is important, some higher form of life. Yeah? What we're here for is to develop some higher form of life. To become a bodhisattva, to become a Buddha, or to do our best. So don't be ashamed of sitting around doing nothing. Glory in it. Do things spontaneously out of a state of inner satisfaction and achievement. It is a virtue to be ornamental as well as useful. Yeah? So anyway, we're coming to the end now. It's interesting that, isn't it? You know, when I look at my own life, I think when I've got time off, it's a bit like if I sit around and don't do anything, I start kind of feeling the need to justify my existence. It's something, and we're going to come on to this actually in the next week's talk, there's something about some sort of latent sense of lack of worth or something like that. A lot of action comes from the continual need to sort of prove ourselves to ourselves, you know. So um, anyway, I suppose sort of what I've got out of all this and looking at Tom Hodgkinson and reading Sanger Atchard's talks is, well, let's resist the temptation to join in with the pace of the rat race. Yeah, we don't have to. There's no need to sort of feel guilty about not working, yeah? Remember, we're Buddhists. And Sangharachita has said all those things. So we've got the kind of the stamp of approval from the chief. Yeah? Let's work on relaxing, stopping, unwinding, yeah? doing nothing even. So much of modern life is about hard working and striving. Yeah? And of course, you know, there is a place, of course, in the spiritual life for hard working and striving. And those of you who are here for Mahashraddha's talk on Virya the other week, I think he very ably demonstrated that. Yeah? But as well as being active, we do need to be receptive and to stop. Yeah? We need to do this because when we've stopped, we can watch how we're responding to each present moment. Yeah? We can watch the thoughts and the emotions and the bodily sensations yeah? without trying to change them, to fix them, to make them better. So what I'm hoping is, certainly in my own life anyway, and this is my kind of life's mission, and I'll do it if it kills me, yeah, I want to get off the treadmill, <laughs> actually. I want to really, really learn to value this present moment. Yeah? I don't want to be somebody, like in the John Lennon quote, who says, life's what's happening while we're busy making other plans. Yeah? So what can we do about this? Yeah? Well... I think what we can do as Buddhists is we can start to relax when we're able. Yeah, obviously a lot of the day is taken up doing things, but what about when we finally stop? What can we do? Yeah, we could do nothing more. Yeah, something that I try and do, and this really, really helps me to do it. I don't know why, but it's just sort of the way that I'm wired up. I'll just set an alarm for half an hour's time, 
and I'll just lie on my bed and stare at the ceiling or sit in a chair or something like that. And it's tremendously effective practice. Yeah? And of course, and this is what the whole series is about, of course, we can make sure that when we've done a mindfulness of breathing, a metabarba, whatever the practice is, that we have a period of just sitting as well. Yeah? Otherwise we're subtly getting caught up in that kind of doing-doing uh, again. Yeah? So we need to balance this out. So, you know, this might sound easy, but it's very, very hard, yeah, actually. It's just as hard um, to do this if you're quite an active person as it is for somebody who's terminally lazy to get up and really, really start doing things with their life. Yeah, None, neither's easier, yeah. Though we tend to react to people on the opposite spectrum. Yeah, it is very, very difficult, yeah. But, you know, we can't just blame society for the pace we lead our life at, yeah? There's something also, and this is what we're going to be going to next, into next week, and I think next week we're really, really starting to get more and more practical, yeah? We've got a talk called Swamplands of the Soul, and what we're going to be looking at is the fact that when we stop, yeah, to the degree that we've been on this treadmill, to that degree, when we stop, well, what can happen? It can be quite relaxing, it can be very nice, but what we have to do is we have to deal with the backlog, of things that we've pushed down. So actually, in the process of stopping, things can get quite hectic. Yeah? Things can come up, painful emotions and things. And actually, when we just sit, something that I hear time and time again is, oh, my mind was all over the place. Yeah? Well, another ideology in society is that if we start to kind of suffer or feel something painful, we should distract ourselves. Yeah? What I'd like to go into next week is the fact that if we do this, we miss out on some really valuable opportunities to learn about ourselves, to go beyond the things that we run away from. Yeah? So, I hope that some of you will read this book, a very, very good book, and I hope that you'll kind of walk away from this and just go out into your lives and just question everything, particularly about when you're kind of rushing around. And I hope that you will join me in trying to sort of change my samskaras, yeah, change my habitual tendencies around this, yeah. And I'm hoping in about ten years to be to be thoroughly idle and really enjoying watching everybody else work hard. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's that for now. Let's go down for a twenty-minute break, and what we're going to do is we're going to do some meditation uh, in the second half. Um, we'll just sort of look into a little bit more what this just sitting practice is about.